main activist. Some people in town say the base is run by aliens working with our federal government to conduct mind control and genetic experiments. I'm leaving. I'm glad. Thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Erie Americas. This is Vicky Ayala. And this is your co-host, who's happy to actually be starting this time, Christy Hull. You guys just missed it. It was hilarious. This is our second take of starting this. Yeah, because, of course, we've been chit-chatting for, like, like we always do before we actually start for, like, 40 minutes. And it's been completely silent on both our ends. Of course, we hit record, and there's noise on Vicky's end in her building. So I just instantly started cracking up. I'm like, this always happens. Christy presses recorded. I'm watching her reaction in real time and I go, fuck, they're making noise outside. And she just jumps back and starts laughing and she's like hysterical. I'm still laughing. Because I'm like, it's been quiet all day because it's super freaking cold in New York and nobody's outside. And literally the moment I press record, somebody screamed outside. I always tell people, like, I make a joke about it. Like, I, I sincerely don't mean this, but I say there's certain people our makers make as, like, jokes. And sometimes I think Vicky and I are, like, the butt of so many jokes that I just don't get because this always happens. I swear, guys. And then to boot, this week she's been on spring breaks. So- oh, you want to talk about being the butt of a joke? We could talk about being the butt of a joke. We're going to record. We're going to get all these episodes out of the way because, you know, she's been studying so hard and I'm trying to, like, give her her space. And I'm like, yeah, we're going to go at it. This is our first time recording and it's Friday. Vicky could explain from here on what has happened because it's it's unbelievable. I'm on spring break this week. But here's the thing. I am simultaneously getting my associate's degree at the same time as my surgical tech certification. I am on spring break from surge tech school. I am not on spring break from my associates and did not realize it until like Sunday or Monday where I realized that I have four quizzes. And I'm like, you know what? Let me get them over with so I can have some sort of spring break. Right. Come Tuesday, I'm trying to get through my quizzes and my right eye hurts. But I have Sjogren's. Gives you really, really dry eye and dry mouth. So I'm like, fuck, it's my allergies, it's my Sjogren's, whatever. And she's telling me, like, my eye hurts. And I'm like, yeah, so do mine, but mine's from allergies. So I'm thinking that's what she's talking about. And I'm telling her it's kind of red. Come Wednesday, I sent Chrissy the picture of my eye. My eye was not kind of red. My eye was bloodshot. Bloodshot red. And it really hurt. And there was, like, no moisture coming out of my eye. And I'm like, I don't think this is normal. I decided to do a virtual call with City MD because I really try my best to avoid walking anywhere sometimes because I'm lazy and because COVID. So I do a virtual visit and I'm talking to this doctor. Mind you, it is completely dark in my apartment because at this point I'm like, I can't do light. Talking about my past medical history scares the shit out of me, tells me I need to go to the ER because I might have something called uveitis and it's really serious. And of course I look it up and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to die. I'm going to need a new eyeball. The worst thing you could do is look up things that doctors tell you it could be. Mind you, I didn't have any of the symptoms of uveitis except for my eye was red. So later on that day, it's progressively getting worse. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to go to CityMD because I just have to go to urgent care. I go in there and at this point, I'm getting light sensitive and I'm like sitting in CityMD and I'm like, oh my God, I can't, I can't with the light, I can't with the light, I can't with the light. So I get into the room and let me just give you a little background about CityMD. I have been there about 22 times to get tested. And I always get the same doctor. So the doctor walks in and she's like, hey, it's nice to see you. I'm like, yeah, I'm not here for COVID testing. And she just looks at me. She's like, are you here for your eye? And I'm like, yeah, you can see you it. Think? She's like, okay, we're going to run a test to make sure you didn't scratch a cornea. And I'm like, oh yeah, no, I didn't scratch my cornea. This has got to be something else. So just run the test and then we'll figure out what it is. 
So all of a sudden she puts my head up and the light hits it. And I'm like, oh my God. And she's like, okay, okay, you're light sensitive. So she puts something in my eye to numb it. And then she's like, I'm going to put a dye in your eye. And then we're going to take this little machine that looks like a, a mask. And it like has UV light. So she turns all the lights off and it's this purple light. Didn't hurt my eyes at all. And she's like, okay. All around, all of a sudden she goes, oh, there it is. I'm like, there what is? And she's like, yep, yeah, you scratched your cornea. It, it takes some effort to scratch a cornea. And do you remember scratching it at all? Like you have glasses. So how, I don't understand. So I almost always have my glasses on. Even when I go outside and I walk Lena with my mask, I have glasses on. Sometimes I take them off. And the only thing I can think of is it was really windy in New York a couple of days ago. Maybe something got into my eye from there. But I don't actually remember scratching my cornea. So I was like, of course I fucking did, right? So she's like, okay, no problem. I'll give you some eye drops. You know, those not like the, it naturally heals in a couple of days. But then she tells me, you're not up to date on your tetanus shot. I'm like, nope, I have an appointment. I'm getting my second COVID vaccine. You're not really supposed to get vaccines within two weeks of each other. And my, this is on Wednesday. My appointment is on Saturday. And she's like, yeah, you're going to have to delay that and get a tetanus shot. After everything I went through with COVID and getting that appointment, you are now telling me I need to cancel to get a shot that I already had scheduled two weeks from now. Like that really can't be what you're telling me. I did not cut my cornea with a fucking rusty nail. I call the hotline for the COVID thing. And they're like, you would have to cancel your appointment and call back in two weeks and see if you can get one. And at that point, I would miss the 42 mm -hmm. day mark that you have to take your second dose. I immediately contact my rheumatologist. She did end up telling me that she's, you know, I should prioritize my COVID vaccine. I spoke to my ophthalmologist. Everybody's like, don't worry about it. However, yesterday was like, this must be what it's like to be a vampire. I could take <laughs> absolutely no light into my eye. When I say no light, when I closed my curtains, there was one teeny tiny gap and I couldn't take it. I couldn't look at the television. I couldn't look at my phone. I was actually sitting on the couch in the darkness with a face mask on with a piece of paper towel covering my eye under the face mask. That is how much light I couldn't take. And she sent me a picture. She had the pirate eye thing going on. like, But then you just see like white tissue coming from below me too. And I was just like, <laughs> I swear, she never gets a break. I don't. I had to actually make my husband change all of the settings on the television for it to be the dimmest light possible. But today I'm finally feeling better. My eye is a little bit red, but I'm no longer light sensitive. It no longer hurts. But there goes my spring break because we did we not get any, any podcasting done. Christy, I'm so sorry. I cannot, I cannot do shit. I was like mad she was apologizing because I was like, this is absolutely no reason for you to apologize because of course this would only happen to you. So I'm not taking it personal in any capacity. I have two days left, but I am getting my second dose of the COVID vaccine tomorrow. So I'll probably spend all day Sunday recovering. We are the butt of the universe's <laughs> jokes. Literally the butt of the universe's jokes. Can't you make guys it don't up. understand. And I couldn't even cry. Like I literally couldn't even cry even more than normal. I was like, I can't even freaking cry. And that is my spring break, guys. I hope you had a better week than I did. Cancun. I deserve like 14 <laughs> trips after this. There is something that truly terrifies me. Um, it's something that one of my friends has experienced and I've always been super freaked out by it. And that is sleep paralysis. I've never experienced it. I hope I never experienced it, but I am truly freaked out by it. And I found a Reddit about someone who had this weird experience. So this comes from Zia Naida. It's from a year ago. The title is Weird Experience I Had Last Night. I'm so close, but I need a little help to fully achieve it. Now, this is coming from a page of people who are voluntarily trying to astral project, which is something that I'm like, I don't know why you'd voluntarily do it because it's kind of like, Ugh. but here we go. So yesterday I did a little nap after I came home from work for like two hours. By the way, that's not a nap. That's actually that's a nap is supposed to be like half an hour. Yeah, that's like a REM cycle sleep. No way. 
Woke up again and nothing happened. I went to bed again a few hours after and as soon as I lay down, I was able to really gaze into the void in front of my eyes. I felt like I was able to look kilometers into the darkness. A few seconds later, I felt like my body is that of a giant. It felt like it's constantly expanding and getting smaller again, but I always felt really big. So I tried to do some techniques like rolling out of my body, etc. But nothing really worked, so I just fell asleep. Which to me, I'm like, I would do the opposite. I would wake up. And then I woke up, but it was a false awakening. I immediately noticed that I thought, yes, I finally did it. But that really wasn't the case since everything was really blurry and had some purple tints on it, like an Instagram filter. Something else that freaks me out. People, I hate false. Like I've done it before where I was dreaming within a dream. Like you dream that you wake up. To me, and that happens a lot with people I know that have sleep paralysis. It really freaks me out to know you're in a dream and I feel like I've accidentally had out-of-body experiences. My mind wasn't really that awake, I'd say, as I almost fell asleep normally again. I tried to walk towards my mirror and I kind of collapsed in front of it and just fell back to sleep again. So this sounds like worse than sleep paralysis, like she can't control her body, which is freaky. Similar things happen a few times. Suddenly I wake up in sleep paralysis and a demon thing is sitting on my chest, fully black, so I could just see it. Why is it always demons that come in their sleep paralysis? Why? No! Because if you're completely open and susceptible to things, shouldn't other positive things also come from that as well? I don't understand. Right, like why can't it be like an angel? It choked me, but I'm used to sleep paralysis, so I didn't panic at all. Girl... I don't know how you didn't panic. I don't care how used to sleep paralysis you are. A demon is choking you and just like chill. No. Didn't panic at all and woke up peacefully. And that's pretty much it. I went back to bed after a few minutes, but nothing really happened anymore. Now I wonder how I could have done better as it felt just like a half a lucid dream. How could I have become more lucid and get rid of the dizziness and unclear view? I would be wondering how the hell to never had that happen to me again. Are there people that actually gave her suggestions? <laughs> yes, there are people who responded with suggestions. One person said... Request clarity. Say or think clarity now and I promise you, you will see the results instantly. Another person was just like, lucid dreams take time. Y'all are horrible people for suggesting this. My question would be, how the hell do I stop it? Right, like how do I never have this shit happen again? This has some of my biggest fears. Sleep paralysis, lucid dreaming, and a demon sitting on my chest and choking me. And and you just want to know how you can make it happen better. <laughs> Good luck with that. Okay, sure. <laughs> There are some people on this planet that are meant to shine. Whether they like it or not, they are entrusted to represent a time period. This can be said of one man and his band in the 90s that have been compared to the Beatles due to their influence, not necessarily their sound. Kurt Cobain of the band Nirvana is considered the voice of his generation and was singularly responsible for the plaid grunge phenomenon of the early 90s. Aside from his style and musical influence, Kurt struggled with many demons, like a lot of artists we consider geniuses. From depression to too much drinking to a stomach condition that he said only eased up with the use of drugs, specifically heroin. Sadly, Kurt's life came to an end on April 5th, 1994, 26 years ago, but was found April 8th, 1994. So some people say April 8th, but in reality, they believe he died April 5th. So I always say April 5th. The body of Nirvana frontman was found by an electrician hired by Kurt in a room that sat above his detached car garage, courtesy of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. However, over a quarter of a century later, many still question this supposed suicide. And we're not just talking about obsessed fans unwilling to accept their demigod took his own life or those conspiracy theorists who insist Elvis is still alive either. There's a documentary called Soaked in Bleach, which premiered in 2015, where former Seattle Police Chief Norm Stamper expressed major regret that he didn't more closely examine key individuals who, quote, 
had a motive to see Kurt Cobain dead, end quote. Here is some evidence that up until recently was not disclosed to the public, which may make you re reconsider whether a man whose lyrical abilities may be compared to John Lennon was actually murdered. So firstly, there was the suicide note. The suicide note that Kurt left seems to be a thought-provoking, well-planned piece of writing, which isn't dissimilar to many suicide notes. However, it can be argued by, by some who have studied it, and many hands have touched this letter, that the note doesn't make any mention of suicide at all until the last four lines, something that should make your eyebrows raise. Until then, it mainly speaks of his love of music, but no longer having a love of performing it. What he's talking about in the beginning of the letter Many took it to believe that he was talking about his intent to leave the band. Not his intent to kill himself. Just Not his intent to kill himself. Something which he may have planned to forward to the media in the days that followed. Assuming that this theory is correct. Let's say that this was not, in fact, a suicide letter. This was a goodbye letter to his band and to the people that love Nirvana. It makes a lot more sense when you read it that way until those last four lines. Those of us who were alive when he was around or those of us who have watched his every performance and interview know how, despite his massive success, Kurt was not super thrilled to be famous. He felt crippled and overwhelmed by, his out by the outpouring of admiration, famously stating, quote, I didn't know how to deal with success. If there was a rock star 101, I would have liked to have taken it. What should raise your eyebrows even further is what makes those last four lines even more interesting. The handwriting appears to be written by someone else. Just the last four lines. The last four lines. The note has been analyzed by many experts, and the finding seems to be pretty much split down the middle of whether or not Kurt actually wrote those last four lines. Handwriting experts, some people have said this was not his, and then other people were like, no, this is definitely his. They think he wrote the beginning of the note saying goodbye to Nirvana, but don't think he wrote the suicide lines. The, the last end. four lines are the biggest debate. Everyone agrees that the first part of the, of the suicide note was him. It's the last four lines that are in question, and it's the last four lines that make it seem like a suicide note. Some say it's the same handwriting. Others are certain that it isn't and insist that another person added the last four lines after Kurt's death. Personally, I don't see it as the same writing. Like Kurt, I'm a, actually a natural lefty. So sometimes my handwriting doesn't match up either. Like when I'm writing, sometimes like I'll write bigger blocks and then there'll be smaller blocks. Sometimes there'll be little gaps that won't match. I'm really, handwriting for lefties is very difficult. But those lines are not even next to the rest, rest of the note. And it's sloppily added, which makes me think someone was trying hard to mask their handwriting and confuse those who saw it. The way I write things, they're still parallel. He was writing a normal letter, and then suddenly there's these really huge letterings, and it's coming almost like in a 45-degree angle. So here, I'm going to actually send you the, the note so you can describe it. So it looks like, first of all, I noticed that Whatever handwriting is at the bottom also wrote this up here because this doesn't match the handwriting in the note. So whoever wrote the last four lines also wrote the two in the top. So everything looks pretty uniform. It's actually not as sloppy as I seem some lefty's handwriting because my brother is a lefty and he writes slanted. This is actually not that slanted, but the letters are all about the same size, pretty small handwriting, all going in the same direction, all pretty much looking very letter-like. The last four lines, just so I can read it to you guys, it says... Please keep going, Courtney, for Francis, which is his daughter. For her, life will be so much happier without me. I love you. I love you. I love you. And it's just really weird to switch between regular lowercase and then all of a sudden start writing uppercase. Um, it does look different. The A's are different. No, the A's are kind of the same, but I don't know. It just, it just looks bigger and clearer. I don't know. It looks weird. 
you can either say someone else wrote it or you or I'm sure some people say that he was probably on something and then just the four the he maybe he wrote part of this letter one day and the other four letters when he was super doped up but it it doesn't really look like the same person wrote them cuz he also wrote sentences correctly started with the capital letter ended with the period these sentences don't even start properly they start with a lowercase letter you don't just, like, I don't know, they just don't look very uh, uniform with the rest of the letter. It's very dramatized. People that write, this is almost like a dramatic way, keep going without me. Like, it's very, like, what you would expect a stereotypical suicide note. Kurt is one of the most beautiful lyricists of all time. The rest of the note is so beautifully written, and he's talking about music and his love and not wanting to be a part of this show and talking about all these other things that make him sad about having to say goodbye to something he clearly cares about. But it was about music. And then suddenly it's this overdramatic, dramatized ending for somebody that could write so much more beautifully. He could leave something more beautiful for Courtney and Florence. He wrote Frank. You know, it's funny because the line right before is beautiful. Right before all of these, it says, Francis and Courtney, I'll be at your altar, which kind of sounds like Kurt Cobain wrote it. And then all of a sudden it says, please give going for Francis for her life, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you already wrote a beautiful line to Francis and Courtney. Why would you then write four more lines? You already said what you had to say. It's almost like you're overemphasizing the drama. It's a, it's trying to be overly dramatic to be like, this is clearly a suicide note. It just came off very sus to me when I reassessed it and looked at it again. I consider him and John Lennon on the same side lyrically. Not so much musically, obviously, it's totally different. Hate him or love him, when you hear Nirvana, you have to admit that it's something you don't forget. So it's how it is, but his words were so beautiful. It doesn't match up with the rest of the letter anyway. Even no matter, despite what it says, even the look and the way you're gonna like leave your last sentence look, to look like that, it makes zero sense in my opinion. Also, I did some digging into the months before his death, despite Kurt's usual melancholy. Because the thing is, is people always took him to be a suicide person. He was just a sad person. That's just who he was. A lot of artists are very naturally sad people. That's just who they are. He would say things like, my stomach hurt so bad I wanted to kill myself. But you know when you say that dramatically, like, oh, I had such a headache, I could have died. That's kind of how he spoke, but people started to take that out of context and make it seem like he wanted to kill himself all this time. He was just saying it in that way we say it when we're in our 20s. Oh, I could, I was so hungover, I wanted to die. Oh, I could have killed myself. Like, I drank so much that night. But when he died, suddenly these things took on a life of themselves. So despite what people thought about him being suicidal, he was happier than he had ever been in his life prior to this. He did an interview with the Rolling Stones magazine, which was dated January 27th, 1994, less than three months before his death. And it was titled Success Doesn't Suck, a direct quote from the man himself. So he's kind of backtracking onto what people are already saying about him. He's like, you know, I'm seeing the benefit. I'm happy. He was in the middle of embracing fame and more importantly, fatherhood to his daughter he doted on named Francis Bean. So the question becomes, why at the pinnacle of his personal and professional success would he decide to end it then? Weird number fact two, there was too much heroin in his system. The amount of heroin that was found in Kurt's system would have likely left him unable to pull the trigger of a gun, but it would have almost certainly would have killed him no matter how much tolerance he had built up. In his paper, Dead Men Don't Pull Triggers, Canadian toxicologist Roger Lewis argued that point passionately, stating it would have either immediately rendered him incapacitated or in a comatose state or killed him instantly. From an article I found on the Baltimore Sun website, Tess concluded that after Kurt's death, uh, they had determined that the level of heroin in his bloodstream was 1.52 milligrams per liter. Per liter. 
There was also evidence of diazepam or Valium in his bloodstream. No way could he have taken that much and and Valium and been all right. The heroin dose found in him was a high concentrate by any account, says Randall Bassett, who heads the Chemical Toxicology Institute in Foster City, California. And you have to remember, like, Kurt shot himself with a shotgun. There are smaller guns. He was high, put away his heroin kit, pulled over the shotgun, reversed it because it was sh- it, he shot himself where the trigger was kind of like the furthest point. So he pulled it with his thumb and then shot himself in the head. It doesn't make sense how someone could do that completely stoned. And heroin has never been known for someone to shoot a, such a massive dose and then go kill themselves. Most heroin addicts do it to get high. Why would he get himself high to not experience the high? It's, it wasn't to numb himself out. He could have done so many other things to numb himself out. So many who dismiss these claims point to the experiments of Dr. Colin Brewer, who, after orally taking up to two times the amount of heroin that Cobain had in his system when he died, was still able to comprehend and even balance on one, one leg. However, there's a difference in intensity between orally administering doses and injecting and shooting it. The reason you shoot it is because the high is more intense. You have to remember what the doctor had was chemical, was methadone. He was using street heroin. Those are completely different it's things. It's very, very different. So the arguments are strong on either side of this, but it just has to be said. Cobain did have drug problems. Absolutely. He was sad. Absolutely. But there are other people that live their life like that all the time and never think to commit suicide. So the idea of this automatically leading up to suicide, when other when he was saying less than three months ago that he had never been happier before doesn't make sense this one is the most damning in my opinion and is the strongest evidence that holds that this possibility could be true so number three there were no fingerprints on the gun what did he have time to wipe it after he killed himself according to investigation records there were no usable fingerprints recovered from either the shotgun that kurt allegedly used to end his life nor on the shells that had been located next to it given that kurt was found not wearing gloves and the gun lay on his lifeless chest with his left hand clasped around it. They should have been present in several places. Right. Um, you have to put them on the shelves to put them in the shotgun. And then you've got to have it on the trigger and the shotgun to balance it. I don't know about you all out there. And, you know, I'm not a gun aficionado, but I have never heard of anyone thinking about suicide and going out of their way, wearing gloves or wiping down the shelves, removing those gloves, putting heroin into their body, taking the heroin kit back into this proper place and then killing themselves and then rising from the dead to wipe down the very same gun they just used. I've never heard of that. I don't know about you guys. Also, a strange fact, there wasn't any gun residue that would have been present on Kurt had he fired the weapon. There has to be gunshot residue. That's how they test and know who shoots guns. Zero on his persons. Unheard of. It should have been on his hands and wherever he shot. And yet another twist. The shotgun in question was found to have been freshly loaded with three shells. While this isn't as important as other facts regarding this gun, the assertion was that Kurt had gotten the shotgun in the immediate run-up to his death in order to kill himself. It's odd that he would load it with three shells instead of just the one he would need. You only need one. Why would you load it with three? Did you think you were going to miss? Right. Number four, his credit card was used after death. It's widely agreed based on autopsies and timelines that Kurt Cobain likely died on April 5th before the discovery of his body on April 8th. Strange, then, given there are records that show two transactions on Kurt's credit card on April 6th, the day after his death. Some take that as an indication that Kurt's card was being used after he died. Whoever was using it would have either had, would have, had a better understanding of the timeline around his death than most people. Others have pointed out that the dates on the credit card statement probably only show when the card was charged, not when the transactions took place because this was the 90s and it wasn't instantly sent electronically like it is now. Sometimes it still doesn't even show up on your credit card, but... 
if he killed himself the fifth and they showed up the sixth, it still had to be like used around that time. time. So I think it's important to know what they were used on. And if only there was as many cameras then as they are now, you would have known exactly who used the credit card. On a possibly related note, a different brand of cigarette that the ones Kurt was known to smoke were, were found in the ashtray in the room where his body was discovered. So not not his brand of cigarette. Not his brand. Kurt's brand was also in there, implying two people used that ashtray. Right. Why would he suddenly, for his last cigarette, change his brand? And why would there be two different brands of cigarettes? I don't know. The same reason that he apparently put on gloves before he put the shells in the gun. And wiped down the gun. He also threw the gloves wherever and nobody could find them, Mm -hmm. so he didn't throw them in the garbage. Exactly. Could it be someone used Kurt's card either with his permission or after discovering the body and stealing the card? We don't really know. Number five, Cobain's lawyer and claims of divorce. So Tom Grant is a gangster. Tom Grant is a former detective and private investigator who was originally hired by Kurt's wife, Courtney Love, on April 3rd, 1994. That's right, 3rd. That's awfully close to when he died. To find Kurt after he'd left drug rehab two days earlier. So he was he was like at a drug rehab facility trying to get help. And he left two days early. And magically, Courtney needed to find a private investigator because she had no idea where he was. According to Grant, his investigation uncovered evidence that Kurt was planning to divorce his wife and that this was the reason he was, in Grant's opinion, murdered. Grant claimed he had spoken with Kurt's attorney, Rosemary Carroll, just days after the body was discovered. According to Tom Grant, Carroll had agreed with his theories and urged him to continue into the investigation. So his own lawyer started to agree. Ironically enough, Courtney is the one that found him and he was like, something's weird about this. And the attorney, who was the godmother to Courtney and Kurt's daughter, Frances, even agreed. So she has no reason to disagree because she's also friends with Courtney and goddaughter to their kid. So you would think she would be the last person to kind of be like, I'm not getting into this. She actually encouraged the private investigator. While Grant has spoken publicly about this alleged conversation, Carol herself has not confirmed that this ever happened. She hasn't denied it either. There's audio tapes. So, yeah. Okay, so that's why she can't deny. However, this lack of response is seen by some as Carol indirectly confirming that the conversation took place. In the documentary, Kurt and Courtney, a former nanny who worked at the Cobain property, claimed that there was increased talk about divorce from Kurt during his phone calls in the weeks leading up to his death. Speaking of P.I. Tom Grant, he's number six because we got to talk about him. One would think Nirvana fanatics or online sleuths would be the reasons we are covering this case today, but the main driving force behind the push to have Kurt's death reinvestigated is Tom Grant. This is ironic, given that Courtney Love, who Grant would ultimately accuse Courtney of having her husband killed, is the one who hired him in the first place. During his investigations, including his discussion with Cobain's lawyer, Tom began to strongly suspect Love and has campaigned for years since Cobain's death for the case to be reopened. When you hire a private investigator, they're going to investigate everything. So if you have anything to hide, don't hire a private investigator because they're, they're going to investigate even if they think their client is the one who did something. And funny enough, he actually says that. He like, was, had mentioned to her, he goes, listen, I'm going to uncover things and this is not looking good for you. Do you want me to continue? And she actually gave him the permission. He actually gave her the out. And she still was like, no, of course not. Like, I have nothing to hide because... Courtney Love thinks she's smarter than everyone else, even though she's like doped out of her mind. So she can outsmart anyone. According to professional and personal references, Tom Grant came from a wholesome family and had an exemplary record. Unlike many PIs who usually get like forced out of cops. They're usually, yeah, they're usually like disgraced cops or whatever. They're, yeah. 
he had an ex exemplary record before he retired from the force and went into private investigating. While many have accused Grant of simply seeking financial gain off of a suicide, he has continued his campaign at the expense of his reputation, credibility, and very, very likely any further work in his field. Any further work. I was going to say... That's not the way to go if you wanted to make money off of something because you're literally risking a lot by trying to... It would have been in his benefit to just agree that it was a suicide. Like, he, it, it, it wasn't in his benefit totally. to fight that narrative. Number seven, the claims and death of El Duce. One of the strangest incidents surrounding the death of Kurt Cobain was the mysterious death of a man known as El Duce. So El Duce was this Los Angeles heavy metal musician whose real name was Eldon Hoke. So, yeah, I'd go by El Duce if my name was Eldon Hoke. I totally would. <laughs> El Duce, or Eldon, had claimed to British documentary maker Nick Broomfield, the director of Kurt and Courtney, that Love had offered him $50,000 to, quote, blow his, meaning Kurt's, fucking head off. He stated that this conversation had happened outside the rock shop in Hollywood, California. Apparently, the manager of the shop, Karush Sepidijan, had witnessed the exchange between Courtney and Eldon and would later confirm that what Eldon had said was what he heard as well. El Duce also took a lie detector test on the matter and passed with a 99.9% .9 certainty. Which is very hard unless you're trained to pass lie detector Dude, tests. Dude, I didn't know that number could be that high in a lie detector test. My jaw dropped when I read that. You're just telling the truth. I feel like even people who tell the truth don't have 99.9% .9 because you're nervous anyway. But seriously, I really didn't. Another twist to this already complicated, twisted story. Two days after being filmed for Kurt and Courtney, El Duce was found dead on the railroad track near his home in Los Angeles. His death was ruled as accidental. He had gotten drunk and had wandered onto the, tr the track near his home. It's fair to say that this seems like a cover-up or quite a coincidence. I wish there was like a more caustic way to say that word. I, yeah, there needs to be a new word for it. That's it. Okay, number eight is a man named Greg Sage. Now, most of us won't know who Greg Sage is. I'll explain who he is. It's from this band called the called Wipers, which was a big influence, almost as big as the Melvins for Nirvana originally in the early 80s into the 90s. So I mentioned earlier that the suicide note is believed to have been about Kurt's desire to leave his band. According to guitarist Greg Sage of the band Wipers, Kurt had planned to record some acoustic Lead Belly songs on his own that summer with Sage producing the tracks. Although his words need to be taken with a pinch of salt because, you know, it's just testimony from someone else. Some believe that in the statement from Sage alluding to how much Kurt and intern Nirvana would be worth to the record company should he pass away instead of simply going solo. Greg stated, well, I can't really speculate other than what he said to me, which was he wasn't really happy at all about it. Success to him seemed like, I think, a brick wall. There was no nowhere else to go but down. It was too artificial for him, and he wasn't an artificial person at all. Two weeks after he died, it was, he was supposed to come here, and he wanted to record a bunch of Lead Belly covers. It was kind of a secret because, I mean, people would definitely not allow him to do that. You have to also wonder, he was a billion-dollar industry at this time, and if the industry had any idea of him wishing or wanting to get out, they wouldn't have allowed that, you know, in life because... If he was just gotten out of the scene, he'd be totally forgotten. But if he was to die, he'd be immortalized. And they're n he's not wrong. No, he's not at all. He's totally not wrong. Would Kurt be as successful now if he had lived? I know certainly who wouldn't, which would be the Foo Fighters, because the Foo Fighters would have never formed. You know what I mean? Like, right, because Dave Grohl would still be playing right. Nirvana. It's weird to think of what things would be like, but would they be as successful now? Or would they have just been part of the 90s? I think it was very apparent that Kurt Cobain was sick of performing certain things. They might have 
maybe their music would have changed and nobody would have liked them anymore. Like something, I really feel like something would have happened either way if he had stayed living. I feel like they knew that there was no way that Norvano was going to continue because he just didn't want to do it anymore. So I guess the next best option is to kill him because, you know, that's always the rational answer to things is always to kill someone. But think about how many people when they die, there's their music and their art and everything go up. It skyrockets. And even the death of MF Doom, he died on your wedding reception night. And we didn't find out until New Year's Eve. And then his sales went up 8,000%. Well, look at Pop Smoke. He died a year ago and his album has been at the top of the charts the whole time. Meanwhile, before that, a lot of people, like, yeah. I knew who Pop Smoke was. I know a lot of people loved yeah, him. Yeah, I knew MF But it was his music is now immortalized it's because insane. he passed away. So, I mean, it's sad as it is. It's also like not the way it goes, but that's what we do when, when we as people that purchase these albums, when people pass away, are influencing that kind of behavior from people. Not to blame us because it's not, not our fault. It's not our fault, but it's it is just what happens. It's weird. Number nine, Michael DeWitt and Courtney Love. So as mentioned before, Tom Grant believes Courtney Love t- is to be responsible for the death of Kurt Cobain. Grant also accused the family's male nanny, or Manny, Michael Callie DeWitt, so they all, his nickname was Callie, of co-conspiring with Courtney to kill Cobain. DeWitt was hired by Love. He was a longtime friend and former boyfriend of Courtney's. Like, I was like, that's pretty ballsy of her to have her ex-boyfriend nannying her daughter. That's ballsy. I don't know if I'd be comfortable with that. That's like someone naming their kid after their ex. It's so ballsy and like in your face that they obviously don't give a shit. Callie had left a letter at Kurt's house that was found by Tom that read suspiciously as an alibi. So at this point, it's a few days before Kurt was discovered. Tom Grant got hired in LA. He goes, hey, I'm going to go to Seattle he asked Courtney if he can go to Seattle to start doing the investigation. So he was walking into the house with Kurt's best friend, Dylan, who knew Kurt his whole life. And they looked around and they, like looking around for him. They really did. And Courtney was leading them saying, Dylan, check here, check there, check my mattress, check for the shotgun, da, da, da. She's giving them directions from LA. And he finds, Tom finds this letter by Callie. And it's making it seem as though Kurt came into the house and was being an ass for not reaching out to Courtney. Despite that there was no evidence had that Kurt had been there, he conveniently left this letter like, really not cool what you're doing to Courtney. Well, apparently Kurt Cobain is very talented because he also shot himself without putting fingerprints on a gun. So, yeah, apparently. The letter came off phony and insincere to everyone involved in attempting to find Kurt the few days before he was found. So technically, Kurt could have been dead in that little detached room above the garage when they were looking for him and they found this letter. Although it was ultimately the conversation with Rosemary Carroll that truly set Grant on the path to his eventual conclusion, he noticed increasingly suspicious behavior from the pair almost immediately upon meeting them, particularly from Courtney herself. She would talk endlessly about how Kurt wanted to divorce her and why she used Kurt's mother's name, Wendy, on the missing police reports because she said no one would take her seriously. Yet she's spinning this preemptive premonition Kurt was suicidal and recently bought a shotgun. My thing is, who would allow a shotgun in their home if their spouse was so was such on the brink? Like if if I knew my my spouse was on the brink of suicide, no way would I be in another city and letting a gun in my home. If you're so concerned, why are you sitting there allowing a gun in your home? She also made comments about money and how Kurt could be making millions of dollars for them, but quote, he keeps fucking it up. Oh, sweet. Such a sweet reaction. Yeah. If Grant is correct, was his hiring by Courtney an attempt to cover her tracks only to be outthought and outsmarted by Tom himself? Uh, probably. I would say so. I'm going to say yes. Oh, and by the way, Kurt's best friend Dylan registered the shotgun in his name for Kurt because Kurt wasn't allowed a gun permit, but Kurt wanted it for protection because there were burglaries in the neighborhood at this time. 
So he told Dylan, hey, I need a shotgun. There's been burglaries. And Dylan was like, oh, all right. So we know why Kurt couldn't have a shotgun in his name? Yeah. He was in some kind of trouble before he was famous, and he wasn't allowed to have a gun. So, oh, okay. So he has a previous record. Exactly. He just wasn't allowed. Dylan has gone on record to say his best friend was never suicidal, and if he believed he and if he believed Kurt was, he would have never gotten that shotgun. Pretty. I mean, I I sir I certainly if I thought my my best friend was suicidal, they could tell me that they want protection. I'd be like, okay, so I'll stay with you. Like I wouldn't buy them a gun. So totally. I understand the sentiment. Yeah. People always think because everyone around Kurt at this time was high, they were all doing heroin. They think that that means that there's no logic or no compassion or no care for one another and that's completely false uh, no that's false there's very function there's people who are on drugs that are very functional and just because you're high sometimes doesn't mean that you like every decision you make is like out of exactly your and that's the thing it's like it i think that that kind of stereotypical notion is part of the reasons why so many people can go about functioning without people realizing something's wrong and last but not least and this one is also kind of a big big one for me. I have to agree just because it's very logical in my opinion. This is the logical way. If someone was not telling the truth, this is an easy way to take care of it. There was no legal action taken. Perhaps the more damning evidence to Courtney Love is Courtney Love herself. Not shocking given she's always been her worst enemy, but at least in terms of the accusations that they were involved in this death is that Courtney Love and Michael DeWitt who Tom Grant has accused of actually pulling the trigger that day, he believes Callie is the one that pulled the trigger, have taken zero legal action against the man who has persistently accused them of having the rock star killed. So just in case anyone, like I know we have some listeners outside of the U.S., in the United States and certain other countries, there is a system in which would allow a person to sue somebody else for defamation and libel. If what Tom was saying was utter bullshit, they could legally try to stop him. And Courtney could get her money back plus interest from Tom Grant. Remember, she's paid him to do this work already. She could totally sue him and be like, he's lying. There's no there's no case here. Especially when you have like a business or you're famous. Like a lot of times these things she's a brand affect herself. your... Right, they affect your brand. They affect your business. If it was me and someone was saying something about me that I knew was grossly false, I would sue them because I'm like, you can't ruin my reputation like this. If someone accused me of murder I didn't do, I would be suing the shit out of them. And bear in mind, when he died, he was in the middle of changing his will. He wanted to take Courtney out. And that was part of another big motivation, in my opinion. But, like, he wanted to take Courtney out. But when he died, she took over the empire. She has tens of millions of his dollars. She has original things from him. And the funny thing is, she has sued some people since his death. She sued the band members of Nirvana to not release new music because she, you know, she was fighting with them over the legacy. So that you sue, but you don't sue people who are outwardly accusing you of murder because I've been hearing that Courtney Love did it my whole life. So I'm like, she knows how to sue because she had no problem having this whole feud with Dave Grohl and the and all the band members of Nirvana over what to do with the legacy, but she didn't sue the person that's like accusing you of murdering him. And that's very suspicious, probably because she knows if she sues, they have to look into it and they're really going to find out shit. Well, this is actually what I was going to say to his credit. Tom stated that this would be the case, claiming that if Love tried to take him to court, the evidence that she was involved would be able to unfold in front of the world's eyes. It's an interesting argument to make. Do they have a point or are their claims being made simply not worth the time and money for Courtney Love to respond to? Honestly, Courtney Love's response to everything. If you called her a bitch on Twitter, she'd probably if she you. If she somehow listened to this episode, she would have something to say. Exactly, because she, that's just who she is. 
She has feuded with so many people. If someone is personally accusing me of killing my own family member, I would be on the attack. But there has been Kurt and Courtney was in 1998 by Nick Broomfield. Then there was Soaked in Bleach, which just came out in 2015, which, by the way, you guys can watch. It's on IMBD, commercial-free, or on Prime Video with a few commercials in it. It's still worth checking out, even if I just broke this all down for you. There's a lot more science behind it. There's a combination of reenactments, interviews, and really cool shots of Seattle. It's actually really interesting. Kurt and Courtney is a little older, but there is some irrelevant information, but it's completely documentary style. It's just strictly interviews and observations and stuff, but they're both worth really checking out. I really got a lot of information off there as well, as well as Liz first. Whatever you may think, the fact of the matter is that the world lost a beloved icon that had had an effect on the music world that will always be felt and never forgotten. So I thought this would be a good episode because it is close to the anniversary of Kurt's you know, passing. It's been 26 years. And I don't know. I just think that at the end of the day, what's done in the dark always comes to light. And I just hope that if this is a conspiracy theory and it's all fake and bullshit that comes true, that we find out that it's true. And if she is responsible somehow, she'll pay somehow. That's all that I can hope for some way. Oh, karma works slowly, but it does work. Who does that? Who does that? Who does that? Who does that? This is from our favorite HuffPost. And the title is, Deer crashes through school bus windshield and lands on sleeping student. Why? I don't fucking know. If this was an alligator, it would have been Florida, but this is Virginia, so it's a deer. Quote, I was really confused, Virginia high school student Brendan Martin said after the wild incident interrupted his nap. You think? Yeah, <laughs> I was confused. Just a little bit. I vocalized why. Like, I can't even imagine. I would wake up and be like, what the fuck is happening? Why is this happening? So the article starts off, and this is why I laughed so hard the first time I read it. This is the first line of the article. Maybe he should have counted sheep instead. (laughs) What do you think he was fucking counting deer? A Virginia high school student was napping on a school bus Monday when a deer crashed through the windshield and landed on him. Then the deer scampered off after the bus driver slowed down and opened the door. The deer gave no fucks. Why do deers do that, though? They ram shit and keep going. They don't care. And it like not, does nothing hurt them. Do you remember in Gilmore Girls where the deer hit the car and it just kept going even though it dented her fucking car and the deer was fine? Yeah. What is with them? Are they like the serial killers of animals? Yes, they're the serial killers of the animal kingdom. I don't what, know. What, they're so crazy. They're like the sociopaths. I don't understand. Deers are crazy. So this deer fucking scampers off. The pupil, 15-year-old Brendan Martin of Powhatan High School, was not injured, according to the Richmond Times-Dispatch, but he was befuddled. I would be befuddled, too. That's a great word. I like this. I like this reporter. <laughs> you used befuddled. You could have just said confused. For all, I know. You yeah, said befuddled. Yeah, and for such a ridiculous headline, it's, 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 appropriate. it's quite appropriate. Quote, I was really confused because I was trying to sleep and I woke up to something on my back, Martin told WTVRTV. I realized it was a deer and was just very confused because I've never seen a deer actually jump through a windshield and then land. Well, he did. He landed on your back. Despite the crazy incidents, Martin said he'll, he'll still look for his favorite seat at the front of the bus. This is why you don't sit in the front. I always sat in the back. There's no way it's happening twice, he said to the station. Wildlife encounters with school buses have produced worse results. In 2005, a 14-year-old passenger stashed a coral snake into a book and it escaped and bit him. But you see, that's different because he brought the snake on the bus. So he kind of deserved that. Even, Even waiting for the school bus can be dangerous. In 2019, a woman and her child were attacked by a rabid raccoon at a bus stop. See, that, that's, that's horrible. Oh, I hate raccoons. There is actually a video of it, which I'm going to try and post. This is like a who does that deer. It is. This deer did it on purpose because he wanted to try to land a spot on this podcast. Because that is just ridiculous. 
you jumped through the bus and then it just waited for the door to open and it was like, all right, bye. They're crazy. I'm telling you. They know what they're doing. I don't trust that they're, that people say their brain's the size of a peanut, but that peanut is evil. Well, it jumped through a windshield with that <laughs> peanut-sized brain. We hope you enjoyed our whole ridiculous episode from beginning to end because this one is a little crazy. Just a tad, yeah. Every part of it was crazy. Just a tad from beginning to end. Like, subscribe, you know, all that crap we tell you to do every week that some of you will never do, but we'll still keep saying it. But most importantly, stay weird, Americas. Bye. Bye.